This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Luke chapter 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Thank you, Beatrice. And uh, let me add my welcome to you. And keep your Bibles open or on your phone as we study this Bible passage together. Let me begin, though, by praying. Lord Jesus, these are um, uh, radical uh, words of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would um, help us to really listen, to embrace them, to think on them, And to remember as we hear them that what Jesus describes about the Christian life here is normal Christian experience for us all. Lord, if there are folks here, and we're delighted if they are who aren't yet Christians, we pray that today we'll give some more understanding of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. It's very important that you read the small print. Um, For example, if you buy something under warranty, you've got to read the small print to make sure you know what you're covered for, often not as much as you think. If you take out insurance, make sure you read the small print if you sign a contract for a job. When it comes to the Christian life, this is a striking thing about Scripture, there is no small print. Every part of Scripture is the same. There is nothing kept hidden from us about what it's like to be a Christian. And before we become Christians, Jesus wants us to be absolutely clear As we live as Christians, he wants us to be absolutely clear. Now, we're in a section of Luke's Gospel from 1322 to 1710. It is all about who will be saved. The question that governs the whole section was there at the beginning in chapter 13, verse 22, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's the question that governs our whole uh, section. Through these chapters, Luke answers, or Jesus answers these questions, that question, but running through the chapters is a constant refrain, strive 
to enter through the narrow door. So as you consider the question, or as your friend, if you uh, are reading the Bible with them or seeking to speak to them about Jesus, the constant encouragement is to strive to enter through the narrow door. The door is the way of salvation. It is narrow, therefore many will not enter it. Why will they not enter it? Why do people say no to salvation? Last time, we saw two reasons. Let me just remind us what they are. People say no to salvation because they will not or won't come to terms with their sinful nature and need of forgiveness. They just won't come to terms with the need because it takes a a, a lot of humility. takes a lot of humility for us in the normal course of life to say, sorry. Let me encourage you. I've discovered that it's actually quite good to say sorry when you've messed up. It just helps people move on. It's good to do. To say sorry to God because of indwelling sin is a big deal. Second, people say no to salvation because they value the things of this life more than heaven. And in today's passage, we're asked to consider another reason people say no to salvation. When they understand how costly the Christian life is, they say no. And Jesus has no small sprint. He says, this is what the Christian life is like. And what we're going to look at this morning is what the Christian life is like. And it's the the normal Christian life. This is not the master's or the PhD. This is the the undergraduate degree. It's the normal Christian life. And the setting in our passage is not a private dinner party, but a public scene. Great crowds accompanied Jesus. And Jesus' opening words, verse 26, if anyone comes to me, this is for everyone. Now, if you are not yet a Christian, this is what the Christian life is shaped like. This is what it looks like. And if you are a Christian, this is what your life is like. And I say that confidently, that if you are a clear Christian, if you've come to Jesus for salvation, this will describe your life. Now, there are three statements in our passage that are linked together. Let me read them. Firstly, follow with me. Just look at it. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the word hate will come back to exactly what it means. You can't be my disciple, Jesus says. Notice he doesn't say you can't be the very best kind of disciple. You just can't be a disciple a follower of me. Second, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Third, verse 33, therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus teaching us about the Christian life that's normal and necessary if we are to be his disciple? Three things. Go back to verse 26. 
that Jesus is the most important person in my life. It's the first thing. He is more important than any other relationship. Second, verse 27, to live as a Christian means that there will be suffering for Jesus' sake for every Christian. And third, to live as a Christian means giving up your rights to everything you have for Jesus. And when you kind of lay this out, and somebody is considering whether or not to follow Jesus, in some ways it's completely daft. Unless it's true. Unless Jesus is God. Unless it is the King of Kings speaking. How refreshing it is that there is no small print. It's just how it is. Now, let's consider each in turn and dig in. First, to live as a Christian means Jesus is the most important person in your life. Now, hate, in verse 26, is a literal translation of the Greek word, but the meaning is not what we might first think. And you need to, it is, I'm right in saying that. I'm not trying to wriggle out of something complicated. The way that it's used in both the Old and New Testament, it means uh, preference or priority. So let me give you another reference where it's used. If anyone, this is later in Luke, um, uh, no one can serve two masters, for that he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So it's about priority. It's about who gets the first place. Let me give you um, what might be a, a, a more accurate translation that gets the meaning of this. If anyone comes to me and does not consider me the most important person and first priority in their life over everyone else, even their own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's what it means. Jesus gets the first place. Now, why does this matter? Because salvation is at stake. So, and this is not an uncommon situation. Someone who wants to enter through the door of salvation and their family tries to stop them or a close friend or whatever. How might that be? A young person becomes a Christian at school or university and their family does not support them. It might be neutral or it might be actively trying to persuade them not to follow Jesus. Partly because following Jesus has consequences for one's life decisions. It may be that the person goes home in the holidays and says, look, I've become a Christian, and that means that these are now the priorities in my life. And people disagree and try to persuade us not to follow Jesus. Or in many cultures and places in the world, if someone becomes a Christian, and our gospel partners will tell us this all the time, they are disowned by their families or worse. So, for example, in a family in parts of East Asia, if a son or a daughter refuses to engage in family worship of 
family idols or shrines or whatever, that person is ostracized from the family and cut out of inheritance and so on and so forth. And that is a real cost. And when such a choice has to be made, do I follow Jesus or do I listen to my family or friends and not follow him? And that is a real cost. Jesus is saying to us, our loyalty has to be with him. Let me explain it like this, and I do so conscious of that in this room or listening online, this will be real to people, and I've seen it many times in church life. If you are holding back from entering through the door of salvation because of the cost in terms of familial relationships that you think is too great to become a Christian for, if you do go through the door and trust Jesus, you may well experience rejection now. But as a Christian, you will bring into your familial relationships witness. And in God's time and by His mercy, you may have the joy of leading them to saving faith in 10 or 20 years. That is costly. But if you do not enter into salvation because the cost is too high at the entry point, you will not be saved. And there will be no witness to those in your family. Now that is a costly step to take. But for the sake of your and their salvation, it is right. Let me say as well at this point that if you take such a step or encourage somebody to take such a step, that is one of the reasons we have churches. Because you do not take that step into the unknown. You take it in the context of a family when people stand with you and support you and pray for you. And if in parts of the world, or even in this part of the world, your own family turns away from you, God always calls us into a family, a church family, where we have brothers and sisters in the Lord. All that said, though, the cost is very uh, real. Or in the Christian life, and those of you who are Christians, many of us will know this to be true, when and if we have an important decision to make about what we do with our life, where we go, where we live, it is Jesus' counsel we listen to first. Someone, for example, who senses God calling them to perhaps go overseas or to serve in vocational Christian ministry, or to do that job and not this job because that job allows them to combine ministry and service along with their work. And their families say no. 
And we're not talking here about the godly wisdom that a parent might say, perhaps not yet, which is often good godly wisdom. We need to heed Jesus' wisdom first. I guess the principle also applies when we consider entering into a relationship with someone. As a Christian, you may want to begin a relationship with someone who isn't a Christian because you love them. And to do so is in the desires of your heart, but it's not right according to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. But it's costly, isn't it? It's real. It's costly. There is cost in living a life where our love for the Lord Jesus trumps our love for any other, even love for our families. Such loving loyalty to Jesus is costly, and as people, we suffer the cost. Now, I'm one of the older people in this room. I am officially middle-aged. I am. I've got to come to terms with this. The only thing that middle age or older age benefits you is experience of watching Christians over many years make decisions that were costly. And in every case, the cost. I'm not going to suddenly jump to the answer and say, oh, it was proved right, it was proved right. In every case, the cost was real. And people were able to make these decisions because others were with them, helping them, praying for them. But the right decision is always the right decision in the end. That does not mean to say when we make bad choices, God will not graciously help us. He often does. But we need to listen to Jesus and his wisdom. And one more dimension, if living the Christian life means Jesus comes first, taking priority over every other relationship, that also includes yourself, the end of verse 26, even his own life. Here are some words that we often sing. Often what we sing is radical. It's important that we really think through what we are singing. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be, all of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. That does not mean to say that you cannot have ambitions, hopes, and plans. God is not a killjoy. Ambitions, hopes, and plans. If you want to compete in the Olympics and you're a gifted sports person, don't ever listen to somebody who says that's wrong. They don't know it's wrong. But you must surrender these ambitions, hopes, and plans into the hands of God, which means you sit lightly to them. And if God has other plans, then you're able to listen to him. Now, second, to live as a Christian means Jesus is not only the most important person in your life, but that you will suffer. Now, this is important. 
It's important for all of us. It's important for those embarking on the Christian life. It's important on those of you who are uh, younger to really know what you're getting into. Whoever does not bear his own cross, verse 27, and come after me cannot be my disciple. The nature of Jesus' life on earth was suffering. He faced constant opposition and rejection. His life culminated in carrying a cross physically and spiritually to save us. To follow Jesus means to bear our cross. It is to bear a crossbeam, a crucifixion crossbeam through life. That's the image. Not like Jesus in the unique way that he died to save us in a once-for-all sacrifice for sin, but like Jesus in the experience of opposition, rejection, and spiritual warfare that following him means. Let me give you three examples from my experience as a minister that illustrate what it means to carry a cross in the Christian life, in our part of the world. In other parts of the world, it's more obvious in that you face hostility and persecution. What is it that we face that is hard and that is suffering? Here are three things. Number one, the discouragement of rejection. Someone in Chalmers invited all 50 homes in their housing development where they lived to a carol service just a few months ago, a month ago. No one came, no one replied. Some people crossed the street when they saw them. That's costly. Many of you will be inviting people to events weeks soon in the universities. Many will say no. Many will say yes, but not show. That is costly. Secondly, the antagonism of living in a secular culture. Last term, we studied the first half of the book of Daniel. We start chapter 7 next Sunday night, going through the second half. Daniel encourages us to live distinctively in the world. He encourages you, me, not to withdraw, but not to compromise. And that puts us out of step with the culture and the majority, and increasingly so. Here's a reference from 1 Peter which we use to apply the principles in Daniel. Beloved, I urge you as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, fight against what people would consider it crazy to fight against. Keep your conduct among people who aren't Christians honorable so that when they speak against you, as they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. To be spoken against is unpleasant, but such is the Christian life. To be spoken about in the mainstream culture and media, as we are as Christians, is not pleasant. It is costly, and increasingly so, and more so when it's personal and with people close to us. The third area of cost in a Christian life that I want to ask you to consider is the daily spiritual battles. This is Paul in Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. If I can speak personally for a moment to someone who is a little older than many of you here, felt conscious spiritual warfare is increasingly my experience. 
And I think that is because, perhaps it's because I've begun to accept that that is normal and not resent it and not to resent the cost, just to embrace the cost of the Christian life, but also because we become more and more secular as a context, and therefore the spiritual opposition is more and more real. Every time we train and send someone out, the devil does not want that to happen. Every time we engage in evangelism, every time we take a funeral, every time we take a step forward for the gospel, whether planting Redeemer or redeveloping a building, the devil opposes gospel activity. Somebody put it like this recently, the devil has the bit between his teeth in Western Europe. He is supremely confident. He has a swagger about him because the church is dying. I think that's a fair assessment. To live as a Christian means you will suffer. You will suffer discouragement. You will uh, uh, suffer uh, many setbacks. You will dis suffer from the antagonism of living in a secular culture. And you will uh, uh, suffer in daily spiritual uh, conflict. That's what you're getting into. Thirdly, uh, to live as a Christian means giving up your right to everything you have. Verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus, I think here, is talking about possessions, things that we have, things that we own. And going through the door of salvation means a radical shift in mindset. It's not that we have to necessarily give away what we have or this, that, and the other, but what it does mean is that everything I do possess is not my own. I see it as given to me by Jesus, and I give it all gladly to him. That does not mean to say that Jesus will ask us to give up everything, but he might, and if he does, we are to give it up. Now, again, there is a temptation to caveat this and say that Jesus is not calling us to a pious asceticism where we do not enjoy what he has given us. And of course he's not. He's not calling us to some kind of pietistic asceticism that, that, that we just suffer and give everything away. But I'm not really sure that many of us struggle with that temptation. I think we're much more likely to struggle with the temptation of, of, of greed or, or avarice or acquisitive materialism. One writer puts it helpfully, and I quote, Christian discipleship will be characterized neither by covetous materialism nor by austere asceticism, but by simplicity, generosity, and contentment. Let me say to those of you here who are younger, embarking on life, to live a life guided by simplicity, generosity, and contentment, let me promise you, is a good way to live. Not because I have done it and got it right, because it's taken me a long time to realize that these are the things that matter. I think as a church family, and many of you have arrived at a point in church life where all the building projects and all that stuff is coming to an end, we're going to be moving back from this terribly cold and freezing drafty building, which I was worried you would all think is better, but none of you do, which is great, but it only cost a pound. The heating cost about a million, and it doesn't work. <laughs> to that nice building up the road, that costs a lot of money. 
lots and lots of money over the years. And we've discovered, as many have given a lot of money to make these things happen, that it's liberating. So we've kind of had the opportunity to learn what it means to live simply, generously, and in a contented way. Sometimes I wonder, though, have we really? Do we really understand that? Because we, we're, we are so thoroughly middle class and wealthy. We've got to constantly question if that is a stumbling block to our Christian living. It's just good to ask that question. So there we have it from Jesus, his description of the Christian life. To live as a Christian means Jesus is the most important person. To live as a Christian means you will suffer for Jesus' sake. To live as a Christian means giving up your right to everything for Jesus. If you are not prepared to uh, let your life be shaped in these ways, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus, he says. That is true for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. It is what he says. And so, therefore, Jesus goes on to say, consider the cost of living the Christian life before you sign up or before you enter the door of salvation. That is the point he makes in verses 28 to 30, using a simple illustration from the realm of construction. Imagine if I stood up next week and said, actually, that building up the road, we uh, haven't told you something. We've only raised uh, half of the money because, uh, uh, well, we just went ahead anyway. And uh, actually, it's going to sit as an empty building site for the next 20 years, like the pinnacle in London or the trams. <laughs> the trams. Somebody please tell me why we have these trams. And because they've cost so much money to build them, they cost so much money to get on them. So you don't get on them. Anyway. <laughs> I think it must have cost about 20 billion. I could do all sorts of things for the gospel with 20 billion. And that's the point of the illustration. Don't start the project if you can't complete it. Don't walk into the Christian life without being aware of what's ahead. What comes next, though, I describe as a welcome shock. The welcome shock is that Jesus shifts in verse 31 from considering the cost of following Jesus to now consider the cost of not following him. Verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The picture here is of a future encounter with another king in war. Go right forward to the end of your life when you face Jesus on Judgment Day. He will come towards you as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you have no chance. You have no chance. And the point is, now get your head around that and sue for peace. Make peace with God now. Now, as we finish up, many say no, but many say yes. Why do they say yes? 
Let me give you three reasons. One, salvation. Peace with God. That's a big one. Two, heaven. Heaven described as a banquet in Luke. A real place with real people, a place of wonderful joy, a perfect new creation. In heaven there is no sin, no illness, no sickness, no death, no tears. In heaven there is no conflict, no disagreement, no deceit, no lies. So Anya gets on a plane to go to the other side of the world. Where's our heart going to be today? In the Ukraine, where our family are. And what's going to happen there? In heaven there is no war. In heaven, the physical creation is in perfect harmony with itself. In heaven, there is only purpose and worth to life. In heaven, God is there in person. In heaven, there is no prospect of judgment, because for everyone in heaven, the wrath of God has been extinguished. And heaven is forever, and nothing in this life is forever. That is what we are invited to by Jesus, a place in heaven. Outside of heaven, in eternity, there is hell, full of people who say no to the invitation, because they will not come to terms with their need of forgiveness. They count the things of this life of more worth than heaven. And the cost of living the Christian life is too high. And the third thing, the third reason, and this has really struck me this week, and... Um, let me, uh, I, I mentioned my wife in service one, and when I do that, she kind of, oh! But she can't stop me ever, can she? <laughs> and she can't stop me now because she's not going to be listening. Ha! <laughs> and, I, and it's important that these illustrations are not often used because they're personal and emotive, and I don't want you to remember this illustration. She has always lived her life absolutely convinced, and the conviction comes out in the way she lives, that eternity is where it's at, and this life is but a breath. It means she's cautious when it comes to health stuff, but not paranoid like me. It means that you live on the basis that you are immortal until God determines you're not. And it means that you sit light to stuff. And you invest all your energies full on in living the Christian life. And the cost of it no longer becomes like a, a, a burden that you bear without gladness. Yes, you bear the cost, but you do so gladly. And it suddenly struck me, having been married to her for 25 years, that that's a good way to live. And the Word of God persuades you that it's absolutely right for Jesus to lay it all out, and it's absolutely right to go through that door, and it's absolutely right and logical to live that way. And for those of you who are young, don't wait till 30 or 40 or 50 years from now and say, I wish I had. I wish I had. It is a great way to live. And the last word to those of us who are not so young, 
Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, salt is banned in the UK. Almost certainly it will be legally banned soon. But if you're ever feeling really down, put salt on your food. Because it tastes so much better. Salt, you see, is not simply preservative. Salt brings savour and taste to food. And when you go on in the Christian life and you live in this realm of cost, sometimes the salt loses its saltness. And before it's too late, recover that saltness and live distinctively again. Don't stop battling that sin. Don't stop renouncing all that you have for Jesus. You know, the more you have in life by way of material things, the more the challenge. Many of you students don't have a problem because you don't have anything to renounce. But you will have because you're all bright young things. You will have a lot to renounce. Receive it, take it from God, but sit lightly to it. And keep salty. Keep salty. And then people will taste and see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this uh, radical and yet convincing and logical passage of Scripture. But Lord, we want to go back to where we began this whole issue of making Jesus the first person of our love and devotion. And when that cuts over other relationships, that is very difficult and very hard and very costly. But Lord, help us if we are holding back from entering that door because of what family and others think, to think on it like this. If we go through that door, then there will be perhaps many years of difficulty and rejection and opposition. But we will be saved and we will be able to speak of them and pray for their salvation and be a witness to them. And if we do not go through that door, we will not be saved and we will have no witness So as we embrace the cost, help us to go through that door. Suffering is hard. It's not easy to be a Christian in our culture and in our time. But for a place at the banquet in heaven, forever, it is surely worth it. And in our heart of hearts, as much as we like things and like money, and who of us doesn't, in the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So help us to receive what we have, but sit light to it, to renounce our claim in it, and if the Lord Jesus calls us to give it away or to open up our homes. We were hearing about that earlier. Then let's do so gladly. And 
keep what we cannot lose and set light to what we cannot keep. Help us to be salty. And if we are losing our saltiness, to come back to Jesus and be distinctive again. And all this we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.